So how do you view yourself? How do you view yourself? And what are the primary things in your life that have made you view yourself the way you do? Each of us have sort of these landmark moments, usually in our past, these things that happened and these things sometimes are so large. Maybe it was a trauma. Maybe it was your, uh, a loss of a loved one, loss of a parent. Maybe it was a good experience. Maybe it was something someone said about you when you were in eighth grade about your body or about the way that you are, something that was shameful. Maybe it was something that your parent said or something that a sibling said. Regardless, all of us have these massive things in our life, and, and they oftentimes grow until they begin to have their own source of gravity in our life. And those things shape you. They make you have what is called a self-perception. Self-perception is the way you view yourself. It's the way you view your life. And everyone in here has one. Everyone in here has one. Your self-perception is made up of the way that you think about your past, the way that you think about your present, and the way that you think about your future. And whether you realize it or not, everyone in here has lenses that you think about your past, you think about your present, you think about your future. Let me give you some fictional illustrations of kind of how much your self-perception actually informs your behavior, okay? How much your self-perception informs. Now, I'm not talking about any specific people here. I'm just giving um, fictional uh, realities of people, but the reality is we all know people like these, Okay, and I, ch I chose names of no one that goes here just so that it would, you wouldn't uh, get any weird ideas. I want to introduce you to the self-perception of self-made Stephen. Okay, self-made Stephen. You probably know this guy. What does Stephen believe about his past? Well, Stephen sees his past through a discolored lens. He sees all of the hard things and the traumas that he's been through, and instead of um, seeing any kind of kindness of God or providence of God, he sees hurdles that he overcame by his own strength and his own grit, and his own stick to -itiveness. He doesn't see that God was kind to him. He, if anything, he sees that God maybe stacked the cards against him, but he's just so strong and so intuitive and so intelligent that he overcame those challenges on his own. The way Stephen thinks about his past is he thinks about um, his ability to overcome, right? Now, what does this belief in his past produce in his life? Well, for one, it produces a lack of empathy for other humans, right? Because when he sees people struggling, he goes, well, you know, I had struggles in my life, but I overcame them, so you just need to buck up. Have you ever met somebody like that? His view of his past produces a severe arrogance. He thinks he's the man. He thinks that he is just better than everyone else. It's created an insulated blindness to how his past hurts are actually deeply affecting him in ways that he doesn't even realize. How does Stephen view his present? Well, he views his present... Um, ultimately in discontentment. He's not happy. But he's aware of the fact that he's not happy and he assumes that he's not happy because he just needs more success, right? If I could get that raise, if I could get that promotion, if I could get that person or this experience, then I will be happy. So he's chasing and he's spending his life trying to get something. Why? Because he believes something and he believes that more of what he already has is gonna be enough for him. He has an inflated sense of his own self-importance. He thinks that it's really good for everyone else that he's around in each situation, right? And those beliefs lead to behaviors like work addiction. 
He's trying to fill this vacuum, this dull ache in his soul for more. He's discontent, so he can't stop working. And because he can't stop working, he can't have any functional relationships in his life. He sees relationships as secondary to his own progress and his own accomplishments. Because he thinks that what he is doing in his vocation is the supreme important thing in his life, any relationship comes second. He's narcissistic. He sees relationships as a distraction. What does he believe about his future? Well, he believes that his future is going to follow the trend line of his past. He's going to continue to be successful. But if he's honest, he has a deep fear of failure that creates an erratic and unpredictable behavior in his life. Anybody know anybody like this? If you don't, that might be you. Okay, no. Um, Self-made Stephen. Let me give you another example. This is self-deprecating Sylvia. It was hard to think of an S name, somebody that didn't go here. I was like, okay, so, yes, Sam, should have done that, no. (laughs) Self-deprecating Sylvia. What does Sylvia believe about her past? Well, she too, like Stephen, she has some severe trauma in her past. But instead of seeing those as things that she overcame in her own strength, she sees them as an excuse to actually quit. She sees her trauma as victimizing her. Her trauma has led her to a place where she simply can't succeed. Her past has entirely informed her DNA, her personhood, her present. She has been coddled and passed along by teachers and leaders and peers in her life telling her that she is just simply a victim. And she's lived her whole life under the shadow of her past and her perception of her past. She thinks God is in love her because how could God possibly love her if he allowed the things to happen that have happened in her life? She views her present, and, her, her present and fills her present with just trying to get attention from humans, whether it's positive attention or negative attention. It doesn't matter. She just needs attention from human beings. How does she view her future? She's really only living for the present. She doesn't see a projection of hope in her future or anything to look forward to. She's in the feedback loop of self-pity and self-obsession and self-loathing. It just continues and continues on. So you have self-made Stephen and you have self-deprecating Sylvia. What do they have in common? Self, right? Pride. Have you ever thought about the fact that someone who thinks they're amazing and someone who can't stop making fun of themselves, pride is the issue in both cases because both are looking for attention for themselves and both are only thinking about themselves. Both are only driven by pride. Now, most of you are sitting there and going, well, those, those are easy examples to hear because those are very extreme, okay? Let me give you an example that's not so extreme, still fictional. Let me give you an example that's not so extreme, an example that maybe is going to hit a little bit more close to home for some of us. I want, you to, I want to introduce you to the self-perception of Passive Peter. Passive Peter, he's a pretty normal guy from the outside, takes care of his family, pays his mortgage, goes to church, seems to have a decent relationship with his children and his wife. Satan has Peter right where he wants him. He's just moral enough to fly under the radar, but he's just passive enough to almost be useless to the kingdom of God. Here's how the perception of Peter's life has shaped him. Peter has deep shame about his past. He's deep shame. Not only does he have deep shame about what he's done, the sin, sin he's committed, he has deep shame over the sins that have been committed to him. You know, people do that, they carry shame for things that have been done to them. He's lived his whole life trying to find ways to avoid his past, 
to avoid having to talk about it, to think about it. So he creates barriers in his, in his relationships with humans. He doesn't want people to get too close. Even his own wife, like there's certain things we're just not gonna talk about because I don't wanna go into those things in my past. Peter views his past as unforgivable, shameful, hurtful, listen, unusable and unhealable. He doesn't see anything redeemable about his past. So therefore, his emphasis is driven into the present and into the future. How does Peter view his present? Peter is hesitant to jump into any significant ministry work in his life. Why? Because for one, he doesn't think he has anything to offer. Besides brokenness. And honestly, he doesn't really care much about other people's problems. His energy is mostly consumed with pleasing himself and his family, even though he would never admit that. He's too busy trying to satiate the dull ache of discontentment in his life with socially acceptable narcotics, Netflix, food, vaping, whatever. Maybe that's not socially acceptable. I don't know. (laughs) Who knows? How does he think about his future? Peter doesn't think much about his future. He no longer has any hope that he's going to do anything significant in his life. He's in the midlife crisis slump. He's realized that he's not probably going to succeed or, or do much more than he's already done. So he fills this time just trying to satisfy himself in the moment. Peter entertains the day that maybe someday I'll serve Jesus, but right now I just can't. I have too much stuff going on in my own life. His definition of heaven is a dull, floating cloud land where we sit around doing touchy-feely things and singing church songs forever. Doesn't sound very exciting to Peter. He's not excited about heaven. He doesn't really see the gospel as good news. He just sees it as good news because he doesn't have to go to hell. That's about it. He doesn't see it as life-changing. And his only significant loves in this world are, are the things around him, sports, hobbies, experiences. So dying to him sounds like hell because everything he loves in this life is in this life. So here you have Peter. He does just enough to where he doesn't have to fly under, he flies under the radar, but he's never really able to do much for the Lord because he's crippled by his past. He doesn't have anything excited about in the future. He has a very small gospel, very small Jesus, and he's ultimately just filling his life with things for now. Does it sound like a common story? Why am I giving all these examples? I want you to see how important the way you think about yourself is when it comes to the choices that you make and the behaviors that you have. Our self-perception matters. The way, listen, the way you view your life has exclusive influence on the way you live your life. The way you view your life has exclusive influence on the way, if you're dealing with a behavior problem, if you're dealing with a, with a, a, a problem of, of what you do, it's not, the problem is what, isn't what you're doing, it's what you're believing. The problem is a belief problem. Behavior problems are downstream from belief problems. What you're doing is a result of believing something wrongly. That's why Romans 12, 2 says that God wants to transform you by the renewal of your mind so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So here's my thesis, okay? My thesis is that God wants to deconstruct and reconstruct your self-perception today or at least begin the work of it, or maybe continue the work of it. He wants to deconstruct and reconstruct the way that you view yourself. Because if he has not created that view, that self-perception, then either you have or the enemy has or the world has, and I guarantee it's killing you. He wants you to see yourself the way he sees you. 
He wants to begin that process. So my thesis is that God wants to deconstruct, then reconstruct your self-perception to make you free and fruitful for his glory. Doesn't that sound great? Okay, what does this have to do with Philippians? What we have here in Philippians is we have Paul opening the window into the basement of his own self-perception. It's intriguing. What we have is we have one of the most open revealings of Paul as to what he's feeling, what he's thinking, what he's dealing with, and how he thinks about himself in the past, in the present, and in the future. And so we're going to use this to try to help us understand how we should view our lives in the past and the present and in the future. Now let me just get you a little bit of context because some of you weren't here last week when we set up the book of Philippians, so I want to get you into why this epistle is so astounding and so important. This is a letter Okay, Philippians is a letter. It's a short letter, and it's a personal letter. It was a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church called Philippi, and I know we are Philippi too. We named ourselves after this church, and there's a lot of reasons why. But Paul is writing a personal prison epistle. He's sitting in a prison cell in Rome around 62 AD. Now, I want you to think for a minute what kind of feelings the church is having in this particular moment that Paul is trying to uh, respond to. The first thing that the church at Philippi would be feeling is great sorrow and grief because their pastor, their church planner, their friend, the Apostle Paul, their spiritual father is in chains waiting to see Caesar. There's great anxiety in the church at Philippi at this point that Paul is riding into. You can imagine the thoughts they're having. Is this the end of the Christian movement? Our guy is about to potentially lose his head here. I mean, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to Christianity? Philippi was no stranger to persecution. We read about in Acts 16, they were immediately persecuted right away. So what's coming? What's Rome going to do to us? If they'll arrest Paul, what will they do to us? We have a church here in need of great comfort. Imagine how Paul's feeling as he writes this letter. He's thinking the opposite. How can I bring comfort to these guys? How can I let them know that my circumstance is actually going to work out, that everything's gonna be okay, that God's in control? This could, Paul thinks, could be my last words to this church. What would you write to your children if it was potentially your last words? You wanna put them at ease? You wanna remind them of what's important? You want to let them know of your whereabouts. Paul's considering all this as he's writing this very personal letter as a spiritual father to his spiritual children. Paul planted this church. He brought the gospel to this church in Philippi. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 11. We saw Paul expressing a deep abiding affection. He called it koinonia, partnership, fellowship with the church at Philippi. He said, we have this partnership in what? In the gospel, this sharing, this ministry, this communal community, this commonality, this collaboration, this, this uh, commitment to one another that is rooted in the message of, the, of the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says he comforts them by letting them know that he who has begun a good work in you, plural, in y'all, will carry it out into completion. He prays over them that their love would be true and discerning and purposeful and, and, uh, and that they would grow in it. This was all verses 1 through 11. And Paul up into this point in the, in, the, in the letter has been talking about them. But then in verse 12, he turns and he starts talking about himself. He starts talking about himself. And so what do we learn about the Apostle Paul? Now, here's the outline. And by the way, you'll notice that Paul spends 15 verses talking about himself, yet he never once, yet never once is himself what he talks about. You'll notice that. Talks about himself, 
but himself is not the point. Here's the outline. Paul's going to talk about his past in verse 12 through 18. He's going to talk about his future in 18 to 20. And he's going to talk about his present in 21 through 26. And I want you to remember three words this morning. Providence, confidence, and influence. Providence, confidence, and influence. Paul is going to talk about his past with a sense of providence. He's going to talk about his future with a sense of confidence. And he's going to talk about his present with a sense of influence. Those are the three words I want you to remember. So let's dive in. First of all, Paul saw his past with a sense of providence. And before I read the passage, I want to give you a, a definition that I found on the word providence that I thought was interesting. Providence could be defined as timely preparation for future eventualities. Timely preparation for future eventualities. What I want you to see here is how Paul is talking about what has happened to him and how he sees that God's hand of providence is working in what has happened. So jump in here to verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Now, I gotta stop here because you may not know the backstory. What does he mean, has happened to me? What has happened to Paul up to this point? What's happened to this man at this point? Now, we know because the book of Acts tells us, and you can go and you can read the book of Acts and see what happens, but in a nutshell, Paul, after his third missionary journey, he took up an offering from the churches in the Gentile world, and that offering was meant to be an act of solidarity to the church that was in Jerusalem. You see, the Christian movement early in the first a um, f- few years of it really had, had a very uh, great potential to, to be two churches. You had the Gentile church and you had the church of Jerusalem. The Gentile church largely led by Paul and you had the church of Jerusalem largely led by James and some of the other apostles uh, that, that were there and that stayed there. And because most of the New Testament, not most, a lot of the New Testament was written about these squabblings between the Jews and the Gentiles. Should we eat certain foods and should we continue to be circumcised and all of these kinds of different debates. And so Paul, he saw one church, right? Not two churches. And he didn't see himself as some kind of pope or some kind of uh, leader or, or archbishop. He wanted one church and he knew that the church in Jerusalem was struggling financially so he went to all of these poor Gentile churches and he took up an offering and he was gonna bring the offering to Jerusalem in order to show unity and oneness and kindness to the church of Jerusalem. So he brings this offering to Jerusalem. He gives the offering to, to the church, lays it before the feet of the elders And then he spends the next week doing ministry, uh, really keeping to himself, largely be doing ministry in the temple. And as he's doing ministry in the temple, some uh, Judaizers from Ephesus recognize Paul and they go, hey, that's the guy. That's the guy we've been after. And so they cause a riot in the temple and they literally are gonna kill Paul. And the Romans intervene and they arrest Paul. They arrest him because they don't know what's going on and they know that he's going to be killed. So they arrest him and they begin to question him. And listen, for the next five years, Paul is handed off from leader to leader to leader, getting questioned, putting back in prison. Why? Because he was a Roman citizen and he appealed to Caesar. So he gets from court to court to court. And literally five years, Paul is in prison being transferred. And we don't have time to go there, but if you want to look it up later, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-four, 24, Paul gives a synopsis of all the things that he went through. This dude's had a hard life. He has suffered much 
for the gospel. Shipwrecks, imprisonments, beatings, mocking you, name it. Paul's been through it. And so when he sits here now five years later waiting for his, his day in court with the highest court, Caesar, he's sitting here and he's, his pen hits paper and he writes these words, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me was really to serve the advance of the gospel. This is astounding. This isn't like me, uh, you know, today I went to get my latte and they made it wrong and then I got stuck in traffic and then I, I tell my wife when I get home, you know, today was hard, but I know it was for the gospel because I got to say God bless you when someone sneezed when I walked by. That's not what Paul's doing here, right? This guy's been beat, he's been imprisoned. Everything seemingly has gone wrong for this man, and now he's sitting in chains writing a letter, not even knowing if he's going to get out, and when Penn hits paper, the first thing he says is, everything that God has done has been good and intentional and providential and purposeful. It's beautiful. Now, why can he say that? Look at the text. Two reasons. First reason's in 13. He says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. What's Paul talking about that? Flip two pages over to the end of the book of Philippians and I'll show you. It's just a tiny little verse. You wouldn't even see it, but at the very end he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. Dudes are getting saved in Caesar's household. Why? Because the apostle Paul is in his prison. Or because the apostle Paul is being guarded by his guards on house arrest and he's preaching the gospel. And everybody that comes into contact with this kind of short, funny-looking Jewish man says, what are you doing here? How did you get to Rome? I thought you were from, from Jerusalem. And he's like, well, I'll tell you, I'm a prisoner of Christ. That's what Paul told everybody. You know that? When he opens his epistles, he says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. He didn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar. I'm a prisoner of Christ. And that was an opportunity for him to share the gospel of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the supreme reality in the universe, and that he died and rose and ascended and was going to return. And Paul, the apostle, preached to everybody. Like my grandma, man. She will tell everybody the gospel. You watch out. In the same room as my grandma, you're getting saved. He's got energy for days. Paul's an old man here. He's in his 60s. And because he's in prison, people are getting saved in Caesar's house. How beautiful is that? It's not only just that. Look at verse 14. He says, also most of the brothers having become confident and the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Isn't that kind of backwards? Paul gets arrested for preaching the gospel and it emboldens other Christians? No, it's not at all if you've been around Christianity any time. It was Tertullian, I believe, that said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Christians get persecuted, power comes. Christians start to stand up for the gospel and speak the gospel and stand for their faith. It emboldens and empowers other Christians. It's a real thing. Paul set an example. He wasn't just one who sat around writing systematic theologies about the gospel. He preached the gospel, he lived the gospel, and he confirmed the gospel by his radical expression of faith and that he was willing to go to his death for the gospel. And it emboldened other Christians. It gave validity to his message. 
So he sees providence in less than desirable circumstances. And then in verse 15, he sees providence through less than desirable motives. Paul gives this little sidelight here about some particular people that were preaching for the wrong reasons. He says in verse 15, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to inflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Verse 18. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Now let me just summarize that, synthesize that down for you a little bit. Paul is saying that in my absence, in the vacuum of my leadership, other people have come along and have been preaching the gospel. They've been preaching the true gospel, but they've been doing it for the wrong motives. They've been doing it for selfish motives, for selfish gain. What's so interesting is you would expect Paul to say, you need to shut these guys down. But that's actually not what he does. He says, I'm just glad the gospel's being preached. Now, that's not to say that Paul doesn't care uh, about the sanctity and the holiness of the church. It's not to say, God, I'll tell you what, judgment starts in the house of the Lord. You see all these pastors getting taken down re- recently for having affairs and adultery. Yeah, God cares about the holiness of the church, and he will purify his bride. But make no mistake, the gospel that was preached by men like Ravi Zacharias was still preached. Praise the Lord. Regardless of the vessel that it came through, the gospel is still effectual. Uh, My friend Rick Boya puts it this way, if God didn't use broken people, he wouldn't have anyone to work with. (laughs) And I'm thankful for that. So Paul sees less than desirable motives, but he's still thankful that the gospel is going out even through these wrong motives. Now my first point is simply this, listen. The entirety of your past needs to be reviewed through or in light of God's providence. You, whether you realize it or not, you have a interpretation of your past. You have a hermeneutic for your past. You have an exposition of your past. You've seen it, you've experienced it, you've lived it, you've filed it. And you pull it out and you look at it through a filter. Maybe it's a victim mentality. Maybe it's an I overcame mentality. Maybe you just don't think about it at all, but it affects you more than you realize. And what I want to challenge you to do as a Christian is I want you to pull out your past and I want you to review it through the lens of the providence of God, realizing that every single thing that has happened to you was not caused by God, but it was allowed by God for his purposes and for his glory. It's a beautiful reality when you realize that. The verse we've all heard, it's a famous verse, it's a fridge magnet verse. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Love that verse, right? Having a rough day, your brother wants to encourage you, hey, all things work together for good. You're like, sweet, I feel better. That means that everything's gonna that means everything's gonna work good right now. Like wife's not gonna be mad at me anymore. You know, the, the kid's gonna stop crying, because it says everything's gonna work together for good. Okay? You gotta take things in context. That verse is a sandwich. Can you picture a sandwich? There's two pieces of bread on either side of it. Sandwich without a bread, that's keto. I'm over keto. I did it for a while. Poof, I eat some bread. Give me some carbs. Okay. Here it is. Amen. Get one amen, the whole service, it's bread. That's great. (laughs) Here's the bread of this verse. The first thing Paul says, and and I'm just gonna read it to you in Romans 8, before he says, all things work together for good, he says, he who searches, who? The Holy Spirit who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So before all things work together, you have the Holy Spirit who's asking God, listen to me, asking God what you would have asked if you knew everything God knew. 
It's one of my favorite Tim Keller quotes about prayer. He's like, you either, when you pray, God will either give you what you want or he'll give you what you know he knows you would want if you knew everything he knew. So when you pray, God is actually translating that by the Spirit into what he knows you actually want. Because, you know, you really don't know what you want. You know what you think you want. I want Taco Bell right now. It's not really what I want. Okay, my wants are shallow. My wants are temporal. God's wants for me are eternal. They are deep. They are lasting. They're sufficient. So the Spirit translates. And then look at the other thing he says here. So the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Why? Why do you exist? What is your life for? I'll tell you right now. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's what he wants for you. He wants you to be conformed to the image of your son. That's, that's Christian maturity. It's growing up as, as a Christian. This is a false American gospel that what God wants for you is for you to just have a happy life with no hard things. Tell that to the Apostle Paul. God wants you to look like his son. And there's no greater joy than that. He wants you to grow. And he does that by providentially allowing certain things in your life that you would maybe have not preferred, but he will use them. Now, hear me, God has not caused those things, but he allows those things, and he does so in a providential way. The problem is, is that we look at our past with the wrong key. Have you ever been doing a crossword puzzle? And you're looking at the wrong thing, you're looking at the wrong key, and you start trying to fill them in and they're just not making sense? You're like, I just can't think of a five-letter word that fits in this thing. What in the world? And then like after 20 minutes of beating your head up against the wall, you realize, I'm looking at the wrong key. The problem is we look at our life through the wrong key. We look at our life and we examine all the hard things and we go, God must not be good. If you're looking at your life through the lens of, did things go the way I want them to go or the way that would have been easiest for them to go, then you might come to that conclusion. But if you recognize that God is actually interested in your eternal joy, your ultimate joy, your ultimate good, and then you watch it again, it makes sense. Have you ever watched a movie and uh, you didn't really know what was gonna happen in the movie and then you see the end and you're like, oh, I gotta watch it again now. You ever seen the movie The Village? Spoiler alert. Have you seen it? Okay. It's like they dupe you into thinking that it's this old village in the middle of nowhere with these monsters outside the walls and you're like, oh, you're freaking out the whole time. And then you get to the end and you realize it's all a hoax. It's like an M. Night Shyamalan movie or whatever. And the first thing you think is, I gotta watch that movie again now that I know the truth, right? I want you to watch your life again. You've been programmed by yourself and the world and the devil to think of your past in light of what you wanted out of your life. And it's probably led to a lack of faith and disbelief. I want you to look at your life again as a Christian constantly through the lens of the gospel and through the lens of God's providence. That everything that he has done has been for a reason. I can imagine Paul sitting in prison thinking, why me? Paul was like the secret weapon of church planting, of evangelism, and he's sitting in jail. We would not have this letter if he was not in jail. Paul could have asked the question, you know, why me? Why am I the one to be sent out to the Gentiles? Isn't this, this Pharisee who used to kill Christians? Everything that happened in Paul's life was for a particular reason. It was to lead him up to this point. And he had a view of his past that was steeped in providence. You will never realize your influence in the present or you have confidence in the future until you see God's providence in your past. 
I'm not saying it makes the hurt go away. I'm not saying it makes the trauma go away. But at least it counts for something. It counts for something. It becomes valuable. The second thing Paul saw, I gotta speed up here. The second thing Paul saw was his future and he had confidence in his future. Look at verse 18. The end of 18, he says, yes, I will rejoice. Notice he says, I will. It's a determined posture. I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is a mature, Christ-like man who looks at his future with a mature, Christ-like self-perception. And I want you to see why here. He has great confidence that he's going to be delivered. How how does he have great confidence? Did Paul have a crystal ball? Did he know he was going to get out of prison? How did he know? I would suggest to you that he didn't know. He didn't know if he was going to get out of prison. He didn't know. When Paul says, I will be delivered, this will turn out for my deliverance, he is not referring to his circumstances. He is referring to the fact that if I live... I have life in Christ. And if I die, I have even greater life in Christ. You say, how do I know that, Sam? Because he says it. He says it. He says, if I stay, I have life in Christ. If I die, I have life in Christ. He's untouchable. His circumstances, he has matured out of the need for his circumstances to go a certain way. Sign of maturity in a believer is when something doesn't go their way, how do they respond? Sign of immaturity in me is when something doesn't go my way. How do I respond? What it tells me is when something doesn't go my way, it tells me what my hope is in. Was my hope in the circumstance or was my hope in the outcome of something that is metaphysical, something that is outside of this natural world? Paul's deliverance that he speaks of is not primarily his physical deliverance. The freedom that he had was a spiritual freedom because he was not a slave to Caesar. He was a slave to Christ. He makes that very clear. He has this positional freedom. Now, I want you to notice verse 20. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. Notice those two words, shame and honor. Shame and honor. Shame and honor. Paul, in the Middle East, this is an honor-shame culture, and this is lost on us because we're not an honor-shame culture. Honor is not the currency of our culture. In the Middle East and in many ancient cultures, honor is the currency. Honor is what you're shooting for. Honor is the goal. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, I have this honest expectation of the future that I will not be ashamed, but that I will be honored? No. But that Christ will be honored. That Christ will be honored. Isn't that interesting? See, a typical man in the, in the Middle East or in an honor-shame culture, his goal, his purpose in life would be to obtain honor for himself, not Paul. Paul's focus was to obtain honor for Christ. That was his goal. And that's why he could be so confident of his deliverance. That's why he could be so confident of the honor to come because it was not himself that was going to be honored. It was Christ that was the goal. Listen to me, the key to unshakable confidence is an untouchable pursuit and an unshakable or untakeable prize. Paul couldn't lose. 
He couldn't lose in this, in this instance. He will not be ashamed because his performance is not the producer of honor. He can't lose it. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you have confident hope in your future? How do you have confident hope? So, each of you probably, you have a different lens. How do you think about your future? Some of you have optimism, depending on usually how old you are, okay? When you're 20, everything just like, yeah, I'm gonna be amazing someday. And then the older you get, you realize I may never be amazing. Not like I know anything about that. Okay, yeah. No, I'm realizing this. As I, as I go through my 30s, I'm like, wow, you know, this might be about as good as it gets. Okay? Uh, might all be downhill from here. How do you think about your future? How you think about your future informs the decisions that you make. So how do you have a confident hope for the future? Uh, firstly, let God rearrange your expectations. Let him rearrange your expectations from circumstantial to something beyond circumstantial. What if your only expectation in life would be that Christ would be honored? How different would your life look? What if that was your goal in everything? What if that was what you were focused on? You say, well, how do I do that? Uh, well, it's not by loving your life less, it's by loving Jesus more. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want you to read this, or I, want, I want to read this John Piper quote to you. He says, the, real, the really wonderful moments of joy in this world are not the moments of self-satisfaction, but self-forgetfulness. Standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon and contemplating your own greatness is pathological. At such moments, we are made for a magnificent joy, listen, that comes from outside ourselves. The reason we're all miserable is because we are trying to find joy from things within ourselves, and it is not sufficient. What Piper is saying here is the same thing that, that Paul is, is exhibiting here, and that is that his treasure is outside of himself. It is the honor of Christ. It's what he lives for. And it's satisfying to him. I know that sounds ethereal. It sounds hard to grasp. And what do you mean by that? But when you've started to taste it, it makes sense to you. There's no greater joy than, than living for the glory of something greater than yourself. We watch movies about it. As men, we watch movies where men give themselves for something greater, their nation, their country, someone else, and we go, there's something about that. There is something about that. You were designed to live for something greater than yourself. That's how you were designed. And that's something, there is nothing greater than the person of Jesus Christ. And I wanna ask you, if you were to fill in this line, for Paul to live is Christ and to die is gain. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. To live is Christ for him. He's like, if I live, it's Christ. If I die, it's gain, because I get Christ. If you were to fill that in, in your life with honesty, what would it look like? What would it say? For me to live is my family, and to die is sorrow, because I'll miss my family. For me to live is gardening, and to die is to never garden again. For me to live is my job, and to die is to miss my job. For me to live is to experience my calling, and to die is to be, have to come to an end of my calling. Whatever that thing is, that's your gospel. You hear me? Whatever that thing that you fill that in, that's your gospel. To Paul, the gospel was Jesus. And that's why he could say, to live is Jesus, and to die is Jesus. There's no losing. If to live is your family, as great as your family is, if to live is your accomplishments or your experiences, then to die is hell for you. What is it that you live for? 
I think most of our anxiety is linked to a misguided or misplaced hope. It's believing too small of a gospel. In the intro, I talked about this guy, you know, this passive Peter. Part of the reason that he was really useless in much of serving the kingdom of Jesus is because his view of heaven was a floating cloud. Unexciting, unexhilarating. Nothing that I want to anticipate or live for. The gospel is an exciting reality that Jesus is the ultimate and supreme joy in the universe and that heaven is spending eternity with him. That kind of a future hope changes your behavior because it trumps everything else. It becomes the prime thing in your entire life. If Jesus is your gospel, it will change your life. And if you're not seeing life change, you might ask yourself, what is my gospel? What is the good news that I'm living? Is the good news that I get to be me or do the things that I do? Or is the good news some kind of a, uh, what, it, what is it? What is the gospel? The gospel has to be the supremacy of Jesus Christ in your life. I'm running out of time. Lastly, I want you to see how Paul views his present. So he sees his past with providence. He sees his present with influence. And lastly, he sees, um, pardon me, he sees his future with, uh, well, let me back up. He sees his past with providence. He sees his future with confidence. And he sees his present with a sense of influence. Look at verse 21. Verse 21. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that's to live in an earthly body, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. You see this inner conflict, this inner turmoil that's happening in Paul's heart and his mind. He's like, I, I kind of want to just go be with Jesus. He's tired, man. Paul's tired. Anybody tired? I felt like that this week. And I'm like, like Lord, can you just go home? I'm tired. Like, it's just, I'm just tired. He's feeling this, this call. He's growing out of this world. He's growing into the next world. And he's dealing with this inner dialogue. And when he says give up, when, or when he says to, to go, he's not saying he's going to take his own life. I think he's saying, you know what? I could stop fighting for my life right now. I could stop appealing to Caesar. I could stop trying to get out of prison. And I could just let the Rome take my life. And he's trying to decide what to do. He's trying to decide what he's longing for in 24. But to remain, he says, to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So I want you to see here in closing, I want you to see Paul's thought process as he considers what he's to do with his present life. He says, I I desire to go and be with the Lord, to die, to be done, but I know it's more meaningful that it's better that I stay. Paul had an accurate sense of the importance of his own influence that God had given him. Let me make this very, very clear. If God didn't want you here, if God didn't have a plan for you here, you wouldn't be here. Right? I mean, we, 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 sort of, we sort of live, and I'm including myself in this, we sort of live as though we're just sort of maybe not that needed. You know, someone else will witness, someone else will do this, someone else will do that, someone else will serve, someone else will do kingdom work. Um, I'm sure God's got better people. Yeah, I know that person's hurting, but man, there's probably a professional or a pastor or a counselor that can help because I just, if God didn't want you here, engaged in the work, he'd take you home right now. 
Every breath in your lungs is an assignment. It's a grace. And it was not given to you so that you could watch Netflix. It was given to you so that you could serve Jesus. And if you're feeling a deep ache, a deep emptiness in your life right now, it's probably because you're living for something too small. Yourself. He left you here for a reason, for a purpose. He left you here for a reason. I think we should be deeply impressed and, conv- and convicted by Christ in Paul here. Because this guy is sitting in prison and he's going, if I could just get out, then I could really help these guys out. We're not sitting in prison. There's nothing stopping us. I'm not trying to guilt you too much because guilt doesn't work. Shame doesn't work. I'm trying to get us to see here, though, that if you do not have a self-perception that you have some influence, you'll never live like it. You've been given influence, every single one in this room. You have been given influence. And it, it wasn't just so that you could squander it. The influence that we've been given is so that we can invest it into the kingdom of God. That was the purpose. Every day is an assignment. I want to put a sharp point on this as possible because I feel like the Lord pressed me on this this week. What does it look like to live into the present influence that God has given you? I want to speak to some particular categories here. I want to speak to middle-aged individuals with grown children. Okay? My parents' demographic. I want to speak to you for a minute. Okay? Your kids, they need you to lead them spiritually. I know they're adults now, and I know it doesn't feel like they need you, and maybe they don't call you when they have questions, but they do. Okay? They need you. They need you to lead them spiritually. They need you to to see the influence that you have in their life. Even if you've blown it, even if you've been a bad role model, even if you were a total jerk to your kids growing up, they still need you. And what they need is not your bossiness and not your opinions. What they need is your presence and they need the gospel. They need you to just be there with the gospel. None of us have outgrown a need for parents. My dad passed away recently, but one of the things that ached in my soul with my dad was my dad stopped trying to lead me spiritually. I think he just thought that I outgrew him or something and I longed for it. Dad, please lead me spiritually. I want it. I went to an Acts 29 church planting conference a couple years ago. In Acts 29, it's all young guys my age, just a bunch of young church planters. And there's a room of a thousand of them. And these two older men, the older statesmen of the network, Sam Storms and Ray Ortland, they sat up there and they're 70, 75 years old now, these faithful, godly, gospel proclaiming men. And they sat up there and did an interview. And I looked around the room as these men spoke wisdom, and everybody in the room was leaning in, like I hadn't seen them with any other speaker. Why? because there's a vacuum for young people of older people in the Lord to look up to. We need you. We need you. You say, well, nobody asks me what I think. That's not what we need. We have Google now. We don't don't need your knowledge. We live in the information age. We need your presence. We need your timeless wisdom. We need your help in soul care. I want to say the same thing, same, thing, th- same thing to the retired generation. The same thing is true. I know it feels like there's this disconnect between you and the younger generation. What do we have? I'll tell you what you have. You have a commonality of a soul. 
I sit with older pastors and I'm not really super interested in hearing about how to build small groups because they did ministry in a totally different era. What I am interested in is how do you not blow it? How do you feed your soul? How do you stay healthy? How do you love Jesus? These are timeless realities. We need to share those things. And young people, we need to ask about those things. If we're gonna be a body that feeds itself, if we're gonna be a body that nourishes itself, we gotta press into each other, every age. I wanna speak to the young singles. I wanna speak to young singles. Singleness, listen to me, I don't know why we miss this in the Western church, but singleness is a gift. Why is marriage held up as though it has to happen in the church? Where did that come from? Read the New Testament. Paul praises singleness. He says it's a gift. Why is it a gift? Because you can serve the Lord in a way that you could never with a family. I want to encourage you to serve Jesus now the way that you wish you will wish you would have later. And this is not an indictment. There are single people in our church. Kaylee's just spent a month working in an orphanage. Praise God, right? This is not an indictment. This is an encouragement. Do the work of the ministry now while you can in ways that you'll never be able to later. I want to speak to young mothers and young fathers in this room. We have plenty of them. I know it feels like raising your kids isn't really that big of a thing. It's everything. What we need in this country is godly, kingdom-minded children that grow up and make more disciples. You never will have more influence on a human in your entire life than you do on your kids. You spend all day with them. You are doing good work. Continue it. Lead them. Preach the gospel to them. Don't see your kids as a distraction from mission. They are the mission. At the same time, don't see your kids as an excuse to insulate yourself from anything hard either. Your kids need to see you dive into hard things. They need to dive into hard things with you. You need to have someone over to your house that literally is so odd that your kids go, what's up with, and you're like, shit. Why do they smell fake? Quiet. We gotta love messy, and our kids need to see us love messy. This is what this looks like. You need to see the influence that you have. You need to step into it. Now, I wanna speak to people that are running from their past. I'm calling you this morning. I'm calling you this morning to review your past through the gospel lens of God's kindness and providence and realize that what has happened to you is not a deficit. It's your greatest tool to serve him. Your past can become a parable for God's grace. If you let it, you have to believe the gospel for yourself. Have you believed the gospel for yourself yet? You'll never preach it to someone else if you haven't believed it for yourself. Is the good news good news for you? Is it only good news for other people? You have to flesh out your brokenness with the gospel, the kindness of God, the providence of God. I want to speak to people that are avoiding the present avoiding the present influence. And I want to make this very clear. Serving Jesus, if you're a Christian, serving Jesus and following after Jesus on mission is an obedience issue. It's not an option. To be a Christian is to follow. I don't know when it happened, 30 years ago somewhere, in American evangelicalism, we separated out discipleship from being a Christian. Never should have happened. Well, you can uh, believe in Jesus and have prayed the prayer and not be following him. No, you can't. Jesus said, come and follow me. Follow me. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that you follow. You must step into the mission of Christ if you want to grow. If you want to be a disciple, you have to step into it. 
And then lastly, I want to speak to the people that have believed a gospel that is too small because your future hope is far too weak. If, if what is driving you is the hope of some kind of out-of-body floating world where you play a harp, that's just not going to drive you. I can't think of anything more exciting than a real physical universe in which Jesus is physically ruling and reigning where we get new bodies and spend an eternity without the ache of sin and brokenness forever. New heavens, new earth, cosmic Jesus, the one that breathes stars is gonna recreate and I'll guarantee you it's gonna be way better than the first one. It's exciting. That's a gospel that gets you up in the morning. If the gospel is about escaping this world, if it's just about not having to go to hell, that's not a superior gospel. If you want to change your behavior, change your beliefs. If you want to change what you see yourself producing in your life, it's not a behavior issue, it's a belief issue. And so in closing, I just want to challenge you guys this morning. Do work this week. Ask yourself, how do I view my past? Is it through the lens that I've imported or is it through God's lens? How do I view my present? How do I view my future? Is my gospel big enough? Ask yourself these questions. I'm with this John Piper quote. He said, desire that your life count for something great. Long for your life to have eternal significance. Want this. Do not coast through life without a passion. Don't coast through your life without a passion. Father, we just thank you so much this morning for the Apostle Paul And even more than that, because Paul was just a man, a sinful man at that, we thank you for your son Jesus that was working through the Apostle Paul. We thank you that as Paul was acting, he was acting in a way that was mimicking you, Christ. Because you, Jesus, stepped out of heaven and came into the mess and gave your life as a servant. And servanthood is the model. And so God, we wanna give our lives away like you did, Jesus, because we've been given everything. Lord, I pray for each person in here. I imagine that based on everything that was said that something has pricked something or someone. God, may grace and kindness be the driver this morning. Not guilt, not shame. If anyone is feeling guilt and shame, Lord, I pray that that would be replaced with your kindness. That you would draw them to your work not because they're worried that they, they might not be pleasing you but that, that they would see that the superior joy of serving you is much greater than, than not. Lord, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the truth, Jesus, that you came into this world to save sinners like me. That you died for our sins. That you gave us your life. That you sent your spirit. That you're coming again. That you rose from the grave proving that you were who you said you were and did what you said you did. And we long for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen.